Welcome back to Cause Talk Radio, another true story from True Story FM. I'm your host, Megan Strand with Engage for Good. You can find full show notes and additional resources for today's episode at engageforgood.com. Hey, everyone. Before we jump into this episode today with Kat, I just want to remind you, if you haven't heard yet, new this year, we're giving you, our valued listeners, a chance to become part of our inner circle. We are calling the Cause Crusaders. As you know, Cause Talk Radio is a listener-supported podcast, and we need your help to continue releasing great content each week. So for just $5 a month, you'll get access to episodes a full week early. And if you were an inner circle member, you would have been able to see a live stream of our interview today with Kat because it's the first one we're live streaming to our inner circle. So that's just one of the fantastic benefits you get as part of a Cause Crusader inner circle community, as well as some other special bonuses along the way. So to get signed up, head over to truestory.fm forward slash Cause Crusaders and join us. Murphy, Marketing and Engagement Manager of Engage for Good. How are you today? Well, hello, Megan. I'm trying something new. I'm going to read my introduction script. Does it sound better? Um, I think you sound a little more uh, <laughs> lovely when you use your normal intonation and aren't quite so robotic, <sighs> perhaps. Maybe. <laughs> That's my opinion. I really there's there's really no point to me having done that. I don't even know why I did that. I just um I just wanted to welcome you. I'm so happy to have you here today. And I have a question for you. Oh boy. And I think I know the answer, but um how do you feel about dishwashers? Well, seeing as I didn't have one for like I think three years, I'm a pretty big fan. <gasps> Though if I'm being totally honest, I don't do as many dishes as my husband does, so he's more of the dishwasher person. Wow. I know. Yeah, when we moved into the house that I live in now, we had the world's worst dishwasher. I mean, it it literally did not clean dishes. You have to fully Scrub. clean the dish before <laughs> you before you put it in the dishwasher and then it would kind of get clean. And so we did a big kitchen remodel not too too long ago. And my husband was like, we have to have a Bosch dishwasher because this whole thing is not working for us. So we have a Bosch dishwasher right now. Why am I telling you all of this, Allie? It might be because we're going to talk to somebody from Bosch today. Perhaps. <laughs> Spoiler alert. So that is exactly why, because we are ha- we have the great pleasure of talking to Kat Owsley, who is the president of the Bosch Community Fund today on Cause Talk Radio, which is super exciting. So shall we dive in and do that? Absolutely. I'm excited to hear what she has to share. Well, hello, Kat, and welcome to Cause Talk Radio. Thank you, Megan. Nice to see you. Would you start off by maybe giving us a little bit of background about the Bosch Community Fund? And maybe you could take us back to pre-Bosch Community Fund and what corporate contributions looked like at Bosch prior to, I think it was about 2011? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, so the Bosch Community Fund is the corporate foundation for Bosch in North America. And it was established in 2011 and then operational in 2012, which is when I came on board from a private foundation. So what I do know um, and can share prior to my um, arrival is 
we did have corporate contributions. Um, and I think that it did line very well with company values and company themes, but probably less structured and certainly less formal. Um, and so I think the big things that were apparent when I came into the company were, um, one, being very deliberate about having a foundation that meant a formality um, of, of philanthropy, of having process, um, sort of drawing a line in the sand, if you will, to say like, you know, we are a foundation as opposed to, um, you know, maybe a little less structured corporate contributions department. And then the big thing, which I know we'll get to is our, our community advisory committee model. So those were the big, um, I'd say, changes. Um, it, it just bringing a different um, sense of structure and formality. And is that why they brought you on, Kat? Were, were they looking to make a change? Or was that something that when you came on board, you were like, okay, we need to change how we're doing things here? Yeah. So it's funny, actually, Megan, because I um, I ran into the recruiter at a party for another nonprofit person in the community. And she said, you know, you're the right person for this Robert Bosch job. And I said, no, no, no. I love what I'm doing. I was on the Detroit National Community Development Team for a big foundation. I loved what I was doing. And She's like, no, no, I really think this is for you. And so one thing led to another. I spoke to the gentleman who at the time was the hiring manager. And he said, listen, you're not only experienced in foundation nonprofit work, but you're particularly in that time, your work in Detroit. Um, I really think you're the right person. You can build this from the ground up. I mean, aside from what I just mentioned, um, everything else was to be built. And I love to build. So um, I thought about it. And then, you know... I think at the end of the day, I thought this is supposed to be for me. And so when I walked in the door, very little was already established aside from this, you know, it's the 5013 was made, um, but everything else I got to build, um, which was really fantastic and very unusual for such an old company too. I love that. You get to build something from the ground up is pretty exciting. And so you already talked about, well, you gave us a sneak preview, I'll call it, of the community advisory committees. What are these? How do they function? What should we know? Yeah. So thanks, Allie. That's a great question. And so that was already determined that we would use, utilize this mechanism, which we call a community advisory committee. Um, and we are in about 45 communities right now in North America. So that includes Canada, Costa Rica, and the United States. And what we think about these are, they're kind of for us, sort of our secret sauce, if you will, because we're a fairly we're a fairly modest foundation in terms of size um, and we're covering a lot of ground. But what we think kind of differentiates us is that we will meet with people in the, each of these communities annually. And when we do, we're having a very informal conversation, but we're meeting with stakeholders who can give us the lay of the land in terms of what's happening in their community as it relates to the focused areas that we support, which are STEM education, which, as you probably know, is science technology engineering and math, and then environment, um, which is conservation and sustainability for us, and then a blend of the two that we call EcoStem. So the purpose of the meeting is to sort of level set, you know, here's who Bosch is, here's what we fund, but tell us a little bit about what's happening. Because as I was saying, I'm sitting in Southeast Michigan, um, but I might not be as familiar with sort of what's happening on the ground in Anderson, South Carolina, or in Phoenix, Arizona. So these committees give us this opportunity to just find out, hey, where, where are your pain points and how can we help you and partner um, and um, just learn and, and discuss. 
Well, first of all, I would like to be part of the Costa Rica team. Can that be arranged? (laughs) And I was supposed to go this past year. And then I went nowhere. Oh, yeah, that's a bummer. Not to rub it in, but you know, I've been to Costa Rica and I love it, but um, (laughs) I digress. Um, So I just want to clarify community advisory committees. Who sits on these community? Is it nonprofits in the community? Is it government leaders? Is it who's who are we talking about here? And how do you identify these people? It's a great question. I'll, yeah, 100%. And here's, here's the um, kind of scientific, non scientific answer, I guess, is that um, typically we're looking at K through 12 education, so public education institutions, nonprofit organizations, a lot of public libraries, sometimes technical colleges, depending on the community. Um, but we also try to leave it a little bit open. So for example, I'll pick on Anderson, South Carolina again, my colleague there at Bosch, um, he's my point person and he grew up in Anderson, South Carolina. So he has a very strong network and we say, okay, given what we're funding, um, given sort of this like very broad template, who do you think we should be talking to? And then when we bring those folks together, we say, who do you think's missing from this room? Now, the caveat to that is, obviously, it's competitive. There's only so much money to go around. So people will sometimes be very open and forthright in terms of, hey, I think, you know, this person's missing or this organization should nope, be Nope, everybody's here. We're all good. Yeah, we're good. We're good. <laughs> um, but at the same time, we've seen so many great people say, you know, I think it'd be really beneficial if we had so-and-so be a part of the conversation. Um, so it does kind of take on, there's a certain amount of subjectivity because it takes on the flavor of the community. Um, it takes on the flavor and the network of the person that we deal with at Bosch at that plant location. And then it just kind of grows and evolves organically as time goes on. So, but typically we are kind of saying, you know, you know it best, but here's what we see in other communities as a way to start. And is this some, you said this was already in place when you got there? Just the idea was, so um, we had to build those all up. So this this has been what we've been doing. This is where the biggest part of probably our jobs are on the team, you know, over the past, coming up on nine years for me. Um, but these relationships, these annual meetings, um, and just sort of the care and feeding, if you will, of our customers. So these committees are pretty, well, I guess since 2011, 2012, not that new. They're new to me, which I think is really exciting. Um, can you, just so we can kind of wrap our heads around this or paint a picture, can you give an example of how a grant might look different now under this model than it would have previously? Yes. And I love that question because obviously in my prior, prior life, I was a grant seeker. And so I can speak to that from the standpoint that I remember some of those frustration points where, um, many times you're having a very, very fast one-on-one where you have one shot. It's like your elevator pitch. What I think is really fascinating about this model is you have this opportunity to come in. I usually do my dog and pony show and I'll say, you know, here, if you're new, um, you know, this is going to be good for you to hear about who we are as a company and a foundation. If you've been with us over the years, this will just be a refresher. But here's any updates in terms of our processes, our procedures, so on and so forth. Um, but then it sort of gives everybody an opportunity just to hear from one another um, we open it out. Sometimes we'll have some lead-in questions just to kind of get the roundtable discussion going. But you have this really unique opportunity to hear what other people are doing, where their pain points might be, best practices, things that didn't work in the past year. Maybe they're talking about a grant they received from us previously, or they're going to start talking and spitballing about things they might apply for. 
And one of the most, um, I think, gratifying things that we have seen over the years is that people will sort of reach across the table and say, I need to talk to you, or I've never met you, but I'm so glad I met you in this forum. Let's take a sidebar. Or they'll see people that they've known for years, but they're never in this sort of um, structure where I didn't even realize that you were doing that. And yet we see each other at all these other community type events. So it's almost become where you get that opportunity just to go high level. And then I might have, you know, seven or eight conversations after that meeting as a one-on-one to talk about what you're going to propose to us as a foundation. But you've had all this other knowledge and input and time to sort of, you know, synthesize and sit with what you've heard. And a lot of times we'll even see people change their minds about what they had in their mind coming into the meeting as their proposal. Um, they'll leave thinking, I'm going to do something completely different just as a result of what I've heard in this conversation. And then, you know, lastly, I'd say we're constantly going around, you know, the North American, you know, routine, right? So I'm going to come back to you next year. And in the meantime, I've been to all these other communities and I might have heard some really great stuff about how people are dealing with eco-STEM or project-based learning. And I can share what I've heard, but then they've also had another year under their belt so they can share what they've been doing as well. So I, I think that's really different from the old model. And even thinking back as you know a fund receiver or a grant seeker, um, the only time I can remember coming together with others would be when I received my check. And I got to go to a forum and stand up and say, this is what my project is. And this is the money I received. And I'm so thankful. But it was after the fact. Otherwise, everything is very much, um, from my perspective and my experience, been very one-on-one and not community-based and not sort of this um, opportunity to discuss and dialogue beforehand. So it's almost like under the old model, it's, you know somebody sitting in an ivory tower deciding who's getting grants and they read through proposals. And under this community advisory committee model, you're just having ongoing dialogue where these community advisors are talking to you throughout the year to share what's going on. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And I love that you said ivory tower because I, um, I always sort of felt there was this mysteriousness, right? Like when I was even at my prior job, there was a level of um, a level of transparency that I thought was missing. And so I like to be very honest about um, how much we have as a foundation, how much we have budgeted for a community. Um, here's what we funded last year. I don't like those surprises because I think it just doesn't start you off on the right foot. You know, so we do like to have some transparency that I I personally did not experience. Uh, it might be different for others, but. Um, it's very hard for somebody when they're sort of shooting in the dark. Like, I, I don't even know what range of money I should ask for. Um, I mean, am I asking for a million dollars or am I asking for $10,000? And so that kind of helps sort of, again, level set and create kind of a safe space. But also now we know what, what the parameters are in which we're dealing with. Well, and speaking of money, how much is the annual giving through the entire community fund? And then how much of that is distributed through that community advisory committee model? Like I said, for a company our size, we're fairly modest because we're, we're young. Um, we're, we're just starting to grow, but we're about $5 million currently. And then the, the money typically ranges around 75% flows through the community advisory committees. The other 25% we earmark for national programs that could be, um, you know, programs that might, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, affect more than one community. For example, our best um, teacher grant program that we administer our first robotics funding 
and then also disaster response. So, but the bulk of it, the large majority of it goes through the local communities. And if, so if we're continuing down this train of money, following the money, grants are, if I understand correctly, by invitation only. Is that right? Okay. And then does that mean that recipients must be members of this advisory committee to apply and do all members apply or how does that, how does that check out? Yeah. And first I'll say it's a, it's such a good question because the, the, to be honest, the invitation only is just helpful for us because we're a small team. So it helps us from sort of not getting all these sort of unsolicited requests over the transom that that's all we would probably end up doing is being traffic cops. Um, so this helps us, you know, we know you first and then we'll invite you. And that means you probably have a pretty good chance of getting a, a grant too. Um, but then no, you don't have to be a member of a community advisory committee to apply. Um, we meet people throughout the year that aren't, you know, that we've just learned about or that are brand new onto the scene. Um, so we'll kind of bring them into the fold and there'll be times in fact, where we might make a grant out of the cycle, but then they usually will become a part of that community advisory committee from there on out. On the flip side, we even have it though, where people are part of the community advisory committee and might choose not to apply. I've had that several times already just this year because of COVID things have sort of paused and they're not really in a place to be ready to apply again. And so they've sort of stood down and they'll wait till next year. I wonder if you could speak, Kat, to performance me- metrics that you monitor for these committees to make sure that they're staying on track and on target. I mean, it sounds like you have, how many did you say? 45? 45 currently, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah, it is. I would say probably a little less structured on the community advisory committees themselves. I mean, we do say, um, we're not going to be the biggest funder in your community, but we're coming back every year. So we'll be having another conversation, um, making sure that we're as inclusive as possible and, and having people come that, um, you know, might be missing from the conversation. But aside from that, I think the structure really comes, Megan, with the grants themselves, um, because we really tried to make the community advisory committee informal, uh, comfortable, it almost becomes very familial after times where I was I was laughing and thinking about getting ready to talk with all of you. And, you know, I always talk to the same person in this one community and it's typically right around Thanksgiving. And so she's asking me questions about what she should apply for. And then she's also sharing a gravy recipe um, or, you know, her Thanksgiving menu for the year. And so, you know, you kind of get into these patterns, but then with the grants themselves is where we really did put more structure around KPIs and continuing improvement process, um, which of course, coming from a big, you know, German company like Bosch, uh, very much about data, very much about KPIs, but we really see that more at the grant level than we do at the community discussion level. You have read my mind. So that was to be my next question. Can you talk to us a little bit about these <laughs> KPIs for the funds? How do you gauge the outcome of a grant? Yeah, I love this question because this is this is my background. I started out in, in survey research and data, so I love it. Obviously, Bosch loves it. So, um, But I will say that, that we also wanted to be very cognizant of the fact that we are a modest-sized foundation and the typical grant recipient is a fairly modest-sized organization. So we wanted to make sure that we were doing something that was feasible and appropriate for both of us. So we worked, um, I think, three years ago now at the Johnson Center for Philanthropy at Grand Valley State to pull together KPIs that we thought were the right fit for both grant recipient, grant giver. And so we have um, both a set of, we want to know your output. So things like number of students, number of teachers, number of dollars, 
um, and then outcomes. And those are what we really vetted with, with Johnson Center. And they can be as high level as, you know, will this grant increase interest by, um, you know, students in STEM education um, to, you know, serving underrepresented audiences, improving environmental conditions. Um, so there's probably about seven to nine. And, and to be honest, we've made it as seamless as possible where when you are applying in our portal, it's literally a drop-down menu. And you can choose the ones that you think at the outset, your grant and your project will impact. And then you'll see those very same KPIs at the end when you do your report template. Um, so there's no surprises. We try to make it as, as seamless as possible. We only ask for the data that we think we can reasonably use. Um, so we want to know about your particular project and how you did. And then we also want to aggregate our data to share with our executive management team and our trustees um, to give a fuller picture of sort of what's happening with the portfolio. But no pros, no you know big essays and theses um, because we won't really use it. And let's face it, even when I was writing those grant reports with anybody, <laughs> I don't know. Does anybody out there, <laughs> is anybody reading this? I like that you have kind of a drop down. <laughs> Here are the outcomes we're looking for. And actually... Just that structure, I would imagine, is educational for the people that are applying because like, there's a difference between outputs and outcomes. Like number of students that were in a classroom, okay, that's you know interesting. But so what? You know, what are those long-term outcomes? So I like I like that you're, you know, it's almost in a way, it's almost more impactful because you have it in sort of a template format. So I love that. Now, is this something you think? I mean, do people call you up, Kat, and say, okay, how do I do this model at my foundation? Like, is this something you think other corporate foundations can and should emulate? I mean, I have to say we get such great feedback from the people that we work with in communities. I um, I can't speak for other corporations, but it does take a lot of energy. It does take a lot of our time, as I mentioned. Um, I will say also, we have such a privilege at Bosch because we are fairly autonomous. So we're not feeling pulled um, by anybody else sort of internally, we really do operate fairly autonomously within this large corporation. And so that allows us to do it the way we do it. Um, but, you know, I'd say as much as you can sort of have the, having these conversations could be so helpful. And, and frankly, Megan, it would be, you know, it'd be on my wish list if we could even at some times um, start to collaborate with other whether corporate foundations or even private foundations within those communities to even hear you know, what they're doing and sort of um, all of us getting that download, you know, if you will, from some of the grant recipients. So, you know, I think it's absolutely possible, but it does take work. Absolutely. One of my absolute favorite questions for you, what have you learned over the past few years? I'm sure there's been a ton, but what have you learned that perhaps wasn't immediately obvious when you started this journey? What would you tell your past self? Well, um, I guess I would say, I'm even surprised by how much this model, as far as just community conversations and getting to know people, it's almost more important in some instances than the grants themselves. So every year, I, I feel that more and more that this is just such a helpful um, opportunity for everybody to hear from one another and to connect. And gosh, even particularly during this COVID time, um, just hearing how people have navigated that and what's been an obstacle and what have they... Um, you know, been able to find us like uh, unexpected opportunities. So the conversations we've been having just in the past six weeks have been wonderful and very rich. And 
helps us be better grant makers as a result of it. So that's been very surprising. Um, but yeah, I guess I would just say, you know, I really enjoy that too. The connecting with people is so important. And at one point we did say to our trustees, you know, if we continue to grow as a company and we have more and more sites that are eligible, but we don't have increased staff, you know, we'll, we'll come to this tipping point. Will, will, we, will we be more automated? Would we be less personal? And the trustees were adamant, like, no, the, this personalization is hugely important for us. And so um, that's where, you know, we, I think we all got so much energy back out of the communities and then the communities have so much, uh, you know, appreciation, I think, for the company. And what would you do without the turkey gravy recipe? I mean... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kat, this has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people learn more about the Bosch Community Fund online if they'd like to do that? Uh, thank you. They can go to our Bosch USA page and you'll find us. Um, we collaborate with our CSR department. So you'll find us on their page. So you can click on Corporate Social Responsibility. And then you can follow me on my LinkedIn as well. So I'm typically posting, you know, every other week or each week about how what we do. Fantastic. We will put both of those links in the show notes, which you can find at engageforgood.com. Thanks again, Kat. And we'll look forward to continuing the conversation in 2021. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.